Sylvester Rivers, I am so unbelievably happy that you're here on Radio Richard. My goodness, I've been waiting for this for a long time. And I've been waiting to be on Radio Richard. I've been hearing about it for a long time. Well, you know, only the best people come on here. And so uh, I like to torture <laughs> only, only really talented people in, to get them in the hot seat. Fantastic. And it looks pretty good there on your setup there with all your guitars and all your weapons of war. Yes, it is. I, you know, I, I dress the set a little to show a few guitars, you know, this is this guitar here, as you can see, I, I bought this because, you know, people were always asking for a black guitar player. So I got myself a black guitar. Hey, man, you pulled it off. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're not here to talk about me, thank goodness. We're here to talk about you. And, um, you know, one of the things when, when I look back over your career, as I do often, um, I realized that it was kind of the sound of all of the great years when I was starting out my career and when I was loving the music that was around. And a lot of the records that were coming out that I loved, you actually played on, arranged, produced, wrote, you did, you did stuff. So what I'd like to ask you first really is just to talk a little bit how, you know, a young handsome kid started, started his career. Well, you're a kind soul as usual. And it all started back in the uh, first grade. I was uh, a bit of a disruptor in class. Uh, I tend to finish my work early and then spend the rest of the time interfering with everybody else. Nice. So unbeknownst to me at the time, the teacher called in my parents and said, this guy's got too much energy on his hands. He needs something. So they asked me, would you like dance lessons or would you like music lessons? And I said, great music lessons. They said, we've got a great piano teacher for us. It's wonderful. I'll be playing like Ray Charles in no time at all. And I uh, got to my first piano lesson and he handed me a book for notation. But that was the very beginning. <laughs> so uh, after that, uh, it was like second nature. It was just like writing my name. Uh, never gave any thought to doing anything else besides being involved in music. Uh, I put my first band together when I was about 10 years old, 10 or 11. Wow. And uh, some of the guys in the band are still active to this very day, including Ray Parker Jr. Wow. Uh, of Ghostbusters fame. So uh, that was the first introduction to professional music. Fantastic. Well, so in terms of uh, making records and working in the studios, how did you get your entree into the studio world? Well, let me back up a little bit. Holland Dozier Holland had broken away from Motown Records. And at the time, because there was a little bit of a rift going on, the Funk Brothers were not supposed to be with their new competitor. Right. So with, when their label started through a series of introductions, I wound up uh, being the house pianist. Uh, I was about 16 at the time. Nice. And uh, as soon as I walked into the studio, uh, I felt like I was completely at home my favorite place to be even to this very day. Making music is a wonderful thing no matter what the venue is, but uh, for some reason I still have to give the edge to the studio, um, mainly I think because of the precision, because of the control, and because of the fact that um, uh, guys that might stretch out or play something that they shouldn't live will always focus a little bit better when they're under the microscope which is in the studio mm -hmm. so that's when it started and um, 
I didn't realize it at the time because it was another day at the office, but uh, I found out later that I had played on my very first number one pop record, number one and man seller uh, when I was 16 or so. That was uh, one answer for the honeycomb. Wow, fantastic. Now, how did, I mean, here's the thing, obviously playing live and, mm -hmm. and having a band is, is pretty different from being in the studio. And I know this from a lot of times people have said, oh, I've got this great guy who's in my band. You've got to have him in the studio. And the guy's a great player, but he doesn't really have the studio mind to be able to, if somebody says, I want it green instead of uh, blue, you know, the, the studio cats are fine. Yeah, here it is green. Here it is red, you know, whatever color you want here. And I know how to do it. Whereas the live guys I've always found have uh, a little more trouble adapting to that immediate versatility of, of doing seven things and each one is fine. I'll do that one, you know. So how did you have that when you were 16? Well, I first of all, I would bear you out on everything that you said and you know from experience. Um, but I would say probably the biggest difference uh, with the studio is the recognition that unless it's your solo record, um, you're there to add to a stew that's coming together as you're cooking it. So a lot of it has to do with listening to what's going on around you, uh, some sort of concept of the overall uh, intention of the music uh, is useful and the lack of a desire to play everything that you've ever learned in bar one. Mm -hmm. So um, you'll find, and, and there are many musicians that cover both bases, but on the studio half of it, I would say that it's a matter of taste and what people are really paying you for is not so much to play the ink, is to have an understanding of everything that I just said. Right. Know when to play, when not to play at all. Yes. Okay. And, and when you do play, make sure that it's adding and not subtracting. Indeed. And that's, yeah, and that's what I think um, is called for under a studio uh, set of conditions, particularly on the, with the rhythm section. Uh, the strings and horns will be playing the ink largely, but on the rhythm section, people are paying you to interpret uh, rather than play the ink per se. Indeed. And, you know, as an arranger for years, I've always said to my musicians, you know, I write a lot of dots, but <laughs> my musicians throughout the years have always known that I say to them, if you've got any other ideas that are better and it's going to make the record a better record, play it. Don't don't be <laughs> tied to the ink so much as it. You know, my dad used to say to me, the old the old jazz musicians in the 30s, when they mm -hmm. said improvise, they thought that word meant to improve, improve eyes, <laughs> the, the song. So, so it's the same thing that we as studio musicians do is that we listen to what it is. We say, okay, I know what they're aiming for on this record. And I have a little idea here of what can make it really happen. And, and that's the great thing. But what I was asking you now, of course, you've described exactly what the mindset of the studio musician is but how did, how on earth did you know that at 16 how did who who influenced you to know that at 16 it's incredible that a kid could could know that well i think in in my case uh it was the result of a lot of listening um i love 
pop music from day number one. I used to have a Dick Tracy style wrist radio uh -huh. that I actually went to bed with. <laughs> and I used to listen to pop records. I was listening to the pop station daily or nightly, yes. I should say. Everything from Motown to the British Invasion to the Beach Boys. I mean, right. everything. Right. So I did have a, a sense of what a pop song should sound like. Right. Um, and the same thing, by the way, spills over to arranging because even if a guy is capable of composing the right of spring, uh, it certainly doesn't go on a pop record. Absolutely. So being able to subtract as well as to add uh, is key. And as I said, specifically to your question, I think for me, it was a result of a lot of listening, particularly uh, to pop records. So I thought I had a feel right. for that. And, and you could probably, I mean, it sounds like at 16, you could play in quite a few different styles anyway. So if the producer had said to you, hey, you know, that's nice what you're playing on the piano, but what I'd really like you to do is just a funky rhythm thing on the clavinet, you'd say, okay, sure, great. Now, you know, that takes that certain type of mindset. Well, that's 100% uh, accurate. Uh, the other thing I would say is that at that age, um, in a strange sort of way, and I don't think I'm speaking just for myself, but in a strange sort of way, when a kid has fewer responsibilities, fewer obligations, uh, he could be more immersed in music at that age, say between 16 and 22, than he might ever be in his whole life. Right. Because all we did was eat, breathe, and sleep music. Of course, you're in music school, uh, so you're at your sharpest. Right. Um, uh, so sight reading was like a piece of cake right? Uh, for me. In fact, with pop music, you know, compared to what you'd study when you're trying to learn your basics, that was actually a break right? Right. <laughs> from sure. playing things that would be, uh, at least from a notation standpoint, more difficult. Mm. But to get the feel and to uh, be able to express it in a way that uh, it would have mass appeal, um, that's kind of a specialized technique. And so as you, one of the things that studio musicians need and certainly a keyboard player needs is keyboards. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, well, maybe at 16, you didn't have a huge collection of keyboards. Maybe you did, I don't know. But what was your go-to studio setup that when, as you got older into your twenties, what was your absolute go-to setup? Which keyboards would you use? At Holland Dozier Holland, they had a beautiful Steinway piano. So on most of the records, I'm talking about with Frida Payne, the Honeycomb, the Glass House, right. Chairman of the Board, uh, 100 Proof Age and Soul, all of their um, acts, for the most part, I was playing the grand piano, okay? Um, at home, because we didn't have digital pianos in those days, sure. I basically had a spinet that I had to suffer with <laughs> uh, because there wasn't too much choice, but Yes, I did have a Wurlitzer, the one that's now a vintage instrument. Right, right. <laughs> I had um, I originally uh, played uh, a borrowed um, original Wurlitzer, the one with the light beige, heavy, heavy instrument. Yes. And uh, then I bought this uh, black one that you still see around. Yes. And that was the go-to instrument uh, around town. Yeah, yeah. And uh, 
what was your setting? Did you use the vibrato? Oh, yeah. And of course, because in those days, when you're playing live, you're basically playing the songs of the day. So whatever happened on the record, you know, whether it was Ode to Billy Joe <laughs> or whether yeah. it was um, Never Loved a Man the Way That I Love You, yeah. it was whatever you heard, it would, <clears throat> I would match it. Were there keyboard players that you knew of on the record? Oh, well, you know, I Never Loved a Man. I know that Spooner Oldham. Did you, were you aware of all that? Um, only to a certain extent of, obviously I knew of all the Funk Brothers and I was fortunate enough to work with all of them at one point or another, either when they eventually started to come over to HGH or when I'd go over to Motown and record, um, or just, you know, sessions around town. But in terms of who was I listening to, uh, I was big on reading the credits. So I knew of all the guys in LA long before I was fortunate enough to meet right. them. Right. And so I definitely knew who was doing what. Right. And, um, and LA was ahead of Detroit to the extent that uh, they were being granted credits at a time when we weren't. Well, exactly. So, and and I, I, I mentioned that in my book, which I'm plugging right <laughs> now, that, uh, that that was really unfortunate for a lot of the Motown guys because uh, the Funk Brothers, uh, Barry Gordy didn't want people to know who was on the records because he was afraid people would steal the Motown sound. And he wasn't the only one. There were other producers that specifically <clears throat> would not provide credits, even out here, for exactly the same reason. Huh. But if you're doing something special, word always leaks. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, that, that would happen. But I was aware of um, Joe Sample. I was aware of Clarence McDonald, who right. we sadly lost less than a month ago. Yes. And a good friend and a wonderful player. Um, but, I mean... Even before I came to California, I thought that they were chock full out here, okay? I mean, they just had uh, so many wonderful guys, David Page, you know, uh, Larry Maherberak, all these wonderful players. And I, I knew not only their names, I knew what they sounded like from listening right. to the records. Jerry right. Peters, uh -huh. you know, just, just wonderful guys. So yeah, so I listened to everybody. So now, of course, you are also a wonderful lovely, marvelous, charming arranger. Uh, how did you get your start in arranging? Well, again, back in Detroit, I used to arrange for my band when we were kids. And there was something about being able to play the whole band as opposed to playing one instrument. So like other composers and arrangers, I was fascinated with the fact that you could think of something translated to paper and then have it translated into a real sound from fun? some guys there that were wonderful players. So it started that way. And then uh, I also had good friends that helped out along the way, like Paul Reiser and Don Davis. And um, that's how I started. Some of the first things that I arranged professionally on record were for stacks of all wow. record companies. A lot of people associate that with Memphis only, but a lot of the Stax records are actually recorded in Detroit. Wow, I didn't uh, know that actually. Yeah, so that's how um, it got started. One thing led to another. And then uh, in 72, uh, Motown left Detroit for LA and all of my clients went out of business at exactly the same time. I didn't find out until 20 years later that it was not exactly an accident, but that's another story for right. another time. 
Right. But at any, any rate, I came out here in 74. And um, now I had already met the legendary arranger, Gene Page, in Detroit right. uh, because we had done a Dionne Warwick album together. By that time, Ray had joined us, at, uh, Ray Parker had joined us, and Ray preceded me by about um, six months to a year out here. So anyway, getting back to Gene, uh, having already met Gene uh, and being the wonderful guy that he was, one night he called me at uh, four o'clock in the morning and he says, oh, babe, he says, I'm really jammed up. I wonder if you could help me with a project. Now, don't forget, I just came to town. You know I can help, right? Right. And how old are you now? Well, now I'm 20. <laughs> I'm an old man. Whoa. So anyway, um, and, and that project that he was producing and arranging was um, uh, a Nancy Wilson album, All in Love is Fair. Oh, I love that track. And that was the very first album where I actually got credit, because in Detroit, you didn't get credit. Right. One thing would lead to another. And in those days, things were so busy in Los Angeles that uh, um, it wasn't as difficult to find work as in other places in the world at other times. I mean, things were happening all over the place. Um, a lot of us would ghost for each other, uh, call the other guy to, to take over when, <laughs> when you're overbooked right. and sort of thing. So um, that was the beginning. And after that, the fun just uh, went on and on from there. Right, yeah. Now that just as you mentioned, on Love Is Fair, I, I love that track, Nancy Williamson. Did you write that that string arrangement? No, no, not the string arrangement. Gene did all the string arrangement. Right. Uh, did the rhythm arrangements the on rhythm, that album. Right, right, yeah. And um, uh, but actually, I, I noticed that he's following your keyboard parts, what you played uh, on some of the lines, and I thought, oh, well. He must have arranged that because it's exactly the same as the keyboards. What he did is he jumped well, on your keyboard part. <laughs> well, Gene, Gene was completely original there, although on the Dionne Warwick album, we did have a little interaction that way. Okay. Uh, that I used to joke with him about. Uh -huh. But uh, um, but Gene, um, as you know, you know, from your book and from, oh, you know, from just being alive at this time in history, um, was not only, you know, a marvelous arranger, but uh, a guy that was known for helping people out uh, in, a, in a major way. And he certainly mm. helped me out. Mm. And in addition uh, to the arranging work that we would do together, I played on quite a few of his dates uh, as keyboard player. So I got to really get involved with his music, with his work, and uh, worked on some really fantastic projects like uh, with Johnny Mathis, for example, right. Kenny Rogers. Right. Uh, just just about everybody you got Aretha Franklin just everybody you can think of um and basically I would also add that uh Detroit as wonderful as the music was that came out of Detroit it was rather cliquish right um coming to California it was like a kid in the candy store uh because it was that to the 10th power in terms of volume so right. I worked on not only that but I worked on film I worked on television I worked on commercials um if if somebody said can you do it the answer was yes yes absolutely that's always the answer uh especially <laughs> especially when it's something you've never done before i always say yes <laughs> uh, tell especially me this. when you're new in town <laughs> that's right oh certainly um i i, I want to just get back to uh gene page and and because 
what kind of size string section would he typically use? Because you must have been at all of those string sessions or a lot of them. Well, here is the thing, um, mainly out of necessity with a lot of the records, uh, the budgets would be low, even sure. though the record turned sure. out to be a monstrously, you know, huge success. Sure. But to answer your question, um, one of the things that was most amazing is that uh, Gene would have the equivalent of um, a chamber orchestra, and you would swear you just heard the New York or LA Philharmonic. Exactly. So oftentimes the string section might be 10 violins, two violas, and two celli. Right, right. Uh, anything larger than that was gravy. It was like a happy day. Absolutely. But yeah, but he, he was particularly um, marvelous at uh, expanding um, a small ensemble and making you think you heard 10 times the number of players. Indeed, and, and I'm, I'm sure that you and I have had the exact same situation where you say, you know, I want 20 strings and they say, I'll give you 12. And you have to figure <laughs> out a way to make them sound great. Now, another point about string sections is, uh, I'm sure he and you had the greatest engineers in the history of mankind because also the sound on from just thinking of gene page records the sound of the strings and the orchestral parts always sound wonderful and full and big and i mean you must have had some pretty hot engineers in those days well we certainly had great engineers there's no question about it and you know with the technology changing over time um you know because we were usually working with major artists they'd have a major studio that came with a major yes. engineer Yes. You know, Bill Schnee, Barney Perkins, right. just, you know, wonderful guys straight across the board. Yeah. Al Schmidt, I mean, just all kinds of geniuses. Right. And um, it's, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, no matter what you record, if, if somebody doesn't have the red button on, oh, hell you're yeah. in a lot of trouble. Yeah. And I also, I must say, still working in the studios as I am, even though it's mm -hmm. less than the old days. <laughs> uh, one of the things that I find most uh, saddening is the fact that young engineers and, and, and studios that I go to, they, they just don't know the correct way to mic up a string section. They don't know which end of the horn to mic up <laughs> a French horn. And that's just unbelievable. I mean, that, I've never had that happen to me in all my years in London, uh, up until the last kind of last 20 years or so i've noticed that you know engineers just don't have the background they don't have the training well i think i think you're right and i think part of that is um a product of the digital age because um uh in the olden days shall we say uh when the technology was less when you had fewer tracks um uh, you you know and i got this directly you know from some of the uh, older engineers I mean, literally, you'd have five instruments. You have the piano <laughs> and the guitar and the trumpet on one mic. So mm -hmm. you'd have to learn mic placement yes. just to get anything that anybody could stand to listen to. Absolutely. And that would carry over with those guys, you know, into modern times. But I think a lot of times with digital recording, um, because people are using samples and using other things, I could see how they could... Uh, be a little remiss with the old style method of just, hey, where do you position this mic? 
Exactly, exactly. And I, I, I think it's very sad because in the old days also, I know that every engineer that I worked with from the time that I started in the studios, which was really 1975, uh, to the to the president, I mean, all of those guys apprenticed with a with another engineer, and so right. they they acted. They were their tape app. They were their their assistant, and then eventually they were thrown in at the deep deep end and asked to do a session. So uh, it's sad that those guys aren't getting that kind of training and that kind of apprenticeship thing, which I think is a fantastic way to learn, especially with that sort of thing. Well, I, could, I couldn't agree with you more. The, the silver lining, though, is digital recording has taken on a life of its own. And there are certain techniques that lend themselves to digital recording that oh, you yes. could not have applied in the analog world. And some of the guys, just mm. like anything else, it's the cream of the crop, right? Mm -hmm. But some of the guys are getting pretty darn good at handling that. Absolutely. If they know where to put the microphones in the first place to record it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, but now um, you've gone through a period of history, which is very similar to mine. I mean, we're, you know, you're a lot younger than I am, but we're almost the same. <laughs> and uh, and I, I would like to, to say something that is provocative to you now and see what what we come up with, because I'd like you to kind of to compare the idea of making music as part of the music business to sell records back in the 70s mm -hmm. and and now what what the differences that you perceive are. Okay, if you mean in terms of how to sell the music, I think that there is a common thread that ties music together throughout history, throughout time, going all the way back to the caveman days and going all over the entire world, okay? But outside of that thread, certain other things are subject to the trend at the time. Yes. And um, what I hear going on now, and some people have actually, scholars or musicologists have actually quantified it. Mm -hmm. And uh, what you think you're hearing is exactly what you are hearing. In other words, you're hearing shorter melodies. Right. <laughs> you're hearing more repetition and lyric right. line. Right. You're hearing all those things that we would do the opposite of to make the music more interesting. Right. So it's, it's getting streamlined down to its bare bones essence. But the reason I still believe that that thread exists is that every now and then somebody will buck the trend and have a monster hit. Right, you know, exactly. And, and in film music uh, in particular, um, you go and you listen to a movie that's scored by John Williams. And while John Williams can cover almost anything, um, if you go back and you take a look at the uh, Star Wars and Jaws period, Star Wars in particular, he was asked quite specifically to go back to the Eric Korngold uh, school. Indeed. And, and bring back, um, you know, the motif and the whole bit. Yes. And um, so he did that and it's kind of stuck. But my point is this, that this is 2021 and people are still listening to remnants of Tchaikovsky and um, um, Stravinsky and Brahms through mm. some of the music of the modern composers like John Williams and Bruce Brown and a bunch of other guys. Sure. Yes, they are. And of course, film music isn't pop music. And, and I think right. that, that I, I 
I would say that film music has not changed very much at all from the 1930s, you know, and, and the, the early days, uh, because people still realize that if you make a film, what is going to get the best emotional response? And they know that pretty much they're going to still want that sound, that that uh, not cheap sound of a big orchestra <laughs> playing very moving music. Uh, but with pop music, I think they've found that by um, well, of course, it's a it's a combination between the marketplace and the music itself. I still believe and I hear all the time because I get mm -hmm. young people coming to me and playing me their stuff. There's a lot of talent out there. There, there are incredible songs being written. There are incredible voices out there. But sadly, I think we are not hearing them. And I feel that you and I were extremely lucky to walk into the studio and be given these great voices. I mean, you, I mean, when Denise Williams walks into the studio, it's like, <laughs> I just, I just want to listen to this right now because it's the most beautiful sound I've ever heard in my life. And also what fun to be able to add to that and, and, and make it even more beautiful. But do we have that now? I, I don't know if we do. We have auto-tune, which, you know, <laughs> it's not quite yeah. as, yeah. Yes, and it, it's a progression. Uh, Denise Williams is a good friend and a wonderful talent. Uh, but just to show you how things intertwine, um, I arranged a record uh, for Candy Staten called Young Hearts Run Free mm. uh, before Denise Williams' hit single came out. Wow. And uh, Denise was singing uh, backup on that same record. That's right. Uh, she as, did a lot of backup on lots of records. She was a great, and, great backing yeah, singer. Absolutely. She was with Wonder Love with Stevie Wonder. Right. And, um, uh, and, Jim Gilstrap, by the way, was on that same record. Oh, and, okay. uh, but I'm, I'm just saying that that when you look at the way that it all comes together, it's all coming from the same place. Right. And you're right. I mean, I was very fortunate uh, to have that kind of talent to work with all the time um, on a regular basis. And that was a joy in and of itself. But I, I couldn't agree with you more that um, when it comes to pop music right now, um, you're, you're hearing some things that sometimes you don't want to hear. But here's, here's the part that I've got a theory. We'll have to put it to the test, by the way. Okay. Um, I think that anybody that records a record, I believe right now you could cut a record that would have been a hit in the 70s. And if you did the same thing today, I think you'd get the same emotional response. You just don't hear it. Mm, that's, I think you're absolutely right about that. Um, let me let me put another uh, provocative question to you. Uh, a mm -hmm. lot of people don't like to answer this. Who, who was the artist that you enjoyed working with most? And that is hard to say, particularly as an arranger. Let me tell you why. And you know this yourself. Yes. Uh, because there have been many projects when I had very little interaction with the artist. Ah. I had more interaction with the producer. Right. So, um, so I couldn't say you know, who was a lot of fun, except to the extent that I knew them outside of the studio scene. Right, right. So, and um, also, for the most part, you know how in some businesses, almost everybody's a drag, and there's a few people that are okay? Well, our business is the opposite. Almost everybody I've met has just been great. 
this is an exception when you meet yeah. somebody you think oh boy let me get out of here yeah but uh for the for the most part they've all been just a tremendous amount of fun uh yeah. to work with now i'm going to ask you another question because i have this thing which you may have heard called musicians funnies now okay musicians funnies is funny stories funny things that happen to musicians when they're trying to make a living what's your funniest studio story <laughs> well a lot of them were, were funny as a routine matter what would happen on the rhythm sessions is uh and this was a carryover from the detroit days um a lot of the guys would like to play a little game that uh, is called playing the dozens uh but it's basically uh an insult game and for those that don't know, and um, and many times uh, everybody knows uh, our late friend Wawa Watson. Uh, well, Wawa and um, uh, one of the original Funk Brothers, Eddie Bongo, and Ray Parker too, would play the dozens all the way into the count off. You'd be on count three before they finally stop. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we we had quite a lot of fun with that one. And, um, and just in terms of funny, that's what I meant when I said that that was funny all the time because they were specifically telling jokes. So yes, it was, right. it was hilarious. It was just a nonstop right. party. A lot of times right. people would ask, why does it sound like you guys, you know, that there was a party going on in the studio? And the answer is because it was. <laughs> <laughs> let, let me just ask, why, why was it called playing the dozens? What, 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 what does that refer to? Well, I don't know how it ever got the name playing the dozens but it was basically a series of jokes about the other guy's mother your mother's so right. fat bang yeah, she's right. so ugly bang right and it would just go on and on and on like that but yeah. uh but yeah that was a that was a routine thing and yeah. some of those guys would never run out of jokes it was the end of the session it was a three-hour date and at the end of the session they were on the in the car on the way out the door and another thing your mom <laughs> It's a bit like the, the the Bo Diddley song, "Same Man." Do you remember that? Oh uh, no, "Same Man." Oh, you got to hear it. I mean, you'll, 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 and and that's what it is. They're just trading insults. It's Bo Diddley and his and one of the guys in the band just trading insults. But that I I get the I get the thing of it. Um, <laughs> what I'd love to do is is hear uh, what you've been doing lately and interesting things that are happening and stuff you'd like to talk about. You're doing now. Well, right now, uh, there's a new movie that's coming out. Wait for it. The new Ghostbusters. Wow. And um, the, re <laughs> the reason that project is uh, looming, I think it's coming out in November, um, is that there is a movie documentary uh, on Ray Parker and Ghostbusters and the whole bit, and I'm in that movie. Great. And uh, there's going to be a book uh, authored by Ray and myself as well. Uh, that's going to be coming out uh, as a companion uh, volume, and uh, and you'll have all of that just before Thanksgiving. So there'll be plenty to talk about at the Thanksgiving dinner table. Well, I am super excited about that, and uh, uh, I you can't tell me anything more about it. No, no little uh, you know. Well, um, there's no real inside things that I can reveal just now, okay. other than to let you know what the date is. So you won't be in suspense too okay. much longer. Okay. So that, that's coming up 
and uh, there are a few independent projects that I can't speak of either that are going to be coming out. So it's going to be a lot now that the COVID-19 situation has calmed down. You're going to see a flurry of activity uh, around about the holidays. So right. be on the lookout for that. Right. And who knows if I see you, you know, you might get put to work. Well, I'm ready. I'm, I'm ready day and night. I'll come over right now. I'll get in the car and well, come to, yeah. I, I see you've got your tools right there in the picture. So you're ready to rock and ready I'm to roll. I'm so ready. I'm so ready. Even if I wasn't born ready, I'm ready now. <laughs> well, that is, that is great. Uh, my very first gold record as a composer was a song called In the Nighttime. Uh, right. Henderson. Mm. And um, that one uh, led to other things. By the way, you had asked me um, about uh, funny stories. Uh, you know the great late uh, harmonica player, Toot Stillman, right? We worked together exactly one time, and uh, that was on a movie called Which Way Is Up, which was a comedy <laughs> with Richard Pryor. Right, yeah. And uh, here's, here's a little film music trivia for you. In this movie, whenever the bad guy would come out, he'd show you his ring. And that's how you'd know it was the bad guy from the bad club. <laughs> and there was a sound, <laughs> there was a sound that you'd hear. And whenever you'd hear that sound, that was me and Toot Stillman. He was playing the harmonica and that's me playing the, uh, I played on the rest of the score too, that's me playing the synthesizer. Uh -huh. But when it, whenever you see that, that's us playing right there. Fantastic. That must have been so much fun to do that. Oh, it was absolutely great. And see, that's the other thing. Talk about um, Kid in the Candy Store. Right. A lot of the guys that, uh, remember you'd ask if I knew who was, um, you know, playing out here. A lot of the guys that I knew of only through their work, I actually met and worked with them out here. I used to play back-to-back -back with Joe Sample with Barry White. Uh, on occasion, Greg Fillingans incidentally was from my high school in Detroit, so he was another right. tramp. Okay. So yeah, so so we'd work together, and um, uh, Wilton Felder, the late Wilton Felder, right. you know, yeah, yeah, many times. But the thing was also that because um, things were so busy, you could not be confined to your own crew. You'd be outside of your comfort zone. Sure. Uh, a good deal of the time because everybody was booked. So you couldn't get right. anybody for one whole album, a whole group, right? Right. So um, I remember Olivia Page was Jane Page's sister and she was my contractor for many nice. years. And uh, she'd always introduce me to these wonderful people uh, that I didn't know. They were famous, but I didn't know them. Uh -huh. David Foster, for example, sure. uh, played on a few of my sessions. And I remember Olivia telling me, he's great, darling. You're just gonna love him. She says, by the way, who wants to produce <laughs> <laughs> yeah he does want to produce doesn't he <laughs> yeah and uh another time i had uh she introduced me to victor feldman oh great and um victor feldman um was playing melody percussion and what happened there you know usually the guy that's playing the vibes is usually going to play the ink but um at a certain point in this particular song, he said, would you like me to open that up for you a little bit? <laughs> and I said, by all means. Yeah. And he just took it to the moon. Yeah. And I remember at the time I was thinking, gee, how does he do that? I had no idea that uh, this guy was a jazz legend right, <laughs> right. yeah. across the board. So this was right up his alley. 
Yeah. So yeah. that was, yeah, that was one of the other great pleasures uh, because no matter, and you know this too, as an arranger, uh, no matter what you actually write, uh, even if you're very careful, note for note, articulation for articulation, um, you still can't know for sure exactly what the other guy's going to play when yeah. the time comes. And uh, I would get so many wonderful, that was one of them, so many wonderful surprises like that. Yeah. And um, uh, David T. Walker and Jeff Beccaro, uh, Ed Green, Scott Edwards, Ollie Brown. We just, like I said, uh, if there's anything that's missing today, uh, I would say it was the interaction. Now yes. it's a little bit lonelier, you know? Absolutely. And and all those wonderful guys that you just mentioned, almost all of them went to your high school. I'm, I wish I'd gone to your high school. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I recorded a record, and at the apex of the song, I put a saxophone solo there. When the saxophone player gets to the highest point of the song with the highest note, this is before auto-tune. Right. He was, he was a little bit flat and the producer said he was out of money and shut it down, okay? So it went out like that. Record turns out to be a smash. <laughs> so after I finished this project, of course it bugged me, I just couldn't stand the idea. And so I'd been working really hard and I hadn't even seen daylight. You know how it is, your office is dark, the studio's windowless. So after 90 days, I just wanted to get out. So I hopped on a plane, no reservations or anything, except last minute, paid through the nose, straight to the Bahamas. Paradise Island, at the time, the Paradise Island Hotel was still up. Check in, go to the room, tired as heck, lay down on the bed, face down, thinking I could sleep for a week, turn on the radio, and the first thing I hear, that note. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's when I learned my lesson. If you have to pay for it yourself, if you have to beat up the producer and ties tie him to the chair, <laughs> right? Never let anything leave that you're not happy with. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, no, it's just it's a personal thing. It's not. I mean, the the record they'll say, well, it doesn't matter because it was a hit. It still matters. Yeah, it still matters to me. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. So yeah. yes, those those kind of things did happen. Is good good enough? Never, not in the studio. <laughs> of course, with us, it's it's an opinion. You know, it's our opinion of whether it's good enough. But our opinion matters because we're responsible for what's going on. Well, that's exactly right. And then the other thing is, everybody has to get paid because you have to put your pants on one leg at a time, like everybody else. So certain things that uh, all humans, even all animals, have to do. You have to get your daily bread. Okay. Yes. That being said. If we were more interested in money than anything else, we would have gone to Wall Street and started a hedge fund. Absolutely. Okay. Artists are doing it for the art. Okay. They have to get paid because everybody's got to get paid, but that's not why. No. So, uh, like I said, uh, when it really comes down to it, even if it doesn't matter to the other guy, you got it right. It does matter to us and it's, it's, it's going to haunt us if things are not right. Well, the only thing that's going to haunt me is if I don't get together with you and make some cool music very soon. Oh, yeah. Well, it's a point now. Like I said, now that uh, the lockdown is over with, we can get back to normal times and normal days. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking forward to it very, very soon.
even though it's Zoom, it's been a pleasure seeing your smiling face. Oh, yes. You haven't changed a bit since last month. No, I haven't. Well, you know, it's it's all it's all a matter of uh, you know a certain amount of uh, copious uh, work done done by a team of scientists on my face <laughs> and fourteen hairdressers. It's great having them with me, but you know, meanwhile. Well, that's great. Okay, man. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I'm just overjoyed. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, Sylvester Rivers, the man, the music. Well, thank you for having me, Richard Niles. And uh, we're looking forward to working together again. Okay. Thank you. All right. Good night. <laughs>